Good day to ye. This is Fantastical Truth, the podcast where we find truth in fantastic stories and apply said fantastical truth to our groaning yet fantastical world around us, the real world that Jesus Christ has called us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett. I'm the publisher of Lorehaven. Please do come in. We have a roaring fire, or depending on where you're from, a roaring air conditioner, or if it's another time of the year, depending on when you listen to this episode. And this is episode nine. I'm Zachary Russell. Call me Zach. And today, this is a very special episode with a very special guest in which we learn about the seedier side of the fantastical world around us. This is a world filled with angels and demons and lots of small town intrigue. There will be so many angels, so many demons. There may even be shredded sulfur trailing wings torpedoing into speeding cars. Also a demonic warlord with a rather morbid name such as Baal Rayfar, which might possibly be the best made up demon name ever. Don't name your kids that. No, just don't. Just don't. We're exploring today uh, the world that many biblical Christian readers are familiar with. It's a classic story in the field of fantastical literature made by Christians. I say the word literature, but the story is a more popular level novel. It was released in 1980s. It is Frank E. Peretti's classic, This Present Darkness. We're actually joined by Austin Gunderson, the review chief of Lorehaven. Uh, he has written an article, uh, kind of a retrospective slash review of This Present Darkness, which will appear in our spring 2020 issue. Austin, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, let's, uh, let's take off and explore the summary, which is taken straight uh, from my original print version of the book, the back cover, which, by the way, I wish to, uh, wish to boast just a little bit, hopefully Apostle Paul style. I boast that this edition is actually autographed by the maestro himself. Uh, this is the description, quote, Ashton is just a typical small town but when a skeptical reporter and a prayerful pastor begin to compare notes, they suddenly find themselves fighting a hideous new age plot to subjugate the townspeople and eventually the entire human race. Not since the Screwtape Letters has there been a novel with as much insight into spiritual warfare and the necessity of prayer. Fast-moving, riveting reading, ranking with the best thrillers on the bookshelf. End quote. I have read this book. I've read it more than once in my memory. Twice, three times, maybe. Zach over here. Blessed be he. He's just now gotten into the book. Yeah, I'm a total noob here. So I actually heard about this book over 20 years ago. I was a senior in high school. So I grew up going to church, but I really wasn't a Christian until about midway through high school, Stephen. We talked a couple episodes ago. I just didn't know about Christian subculture. I wasn't really into it. But it didn't drive you away. Uh, no, no. And uh, But I, I heard about this. So my last semester of high school, I joined this, this youth group at a local Baptist church. And I heard about this book. Everyone was talking about it in the youth group, and it sounded awesome. But for some reason, I never picked it up. And I couldn't really make sense of why. I'm like, everyone is reading this. Why am I not reading this? I've been thinking about this a lot. Back then, I was a hardcore epic fantasy nerd. And I don't know anyone else in that youth group that was, and, and maybe I was just afraid to ask, but I thought, you know, maybe I can't enjoy both genres. Maybe I can't enjoy supernatural Christian fiction and fantasy, epic fantasy, like wheel of time or dragon Lance or whatever. So was my conclusion wrong? I guess we'll explore that. Well, I really uh, look forward to hearing what you think about that book when you finish I could go on about my impressions, uh, past and present, about this present darkness. 
And instead, uh, we're going to rely on uh, Austin, who's written that article for that upcoming Lorehaven issue. Of course, Lorehaven is our free quarterly digital magazine available at lorehaven.com. All you have to do is subscribe to the email updates and you'll get every quarter the free issue delivered to you linked in your inbox. Our spring issue is coming out, uh, should be later this month in March, virus preventing, uh, hopefully virus will not prevent. The cover story is called Our Favorite Fantasy. It features our well-read review team whose members chose their favorite Christian-made fantasy sci-fi and otherwise uh, fantastical stories to review. Austin chose This Present Darkness, and we are very blessed that he wrote uh, wrote a lot about that book. Oh, it's always been a favorite of mine. Uh, I was kind of a grew up in a Christian household and there were some Peretti books lying around and definitely there were always a few Peretti books in our local church library. Uh, so as a, as a kid, I kind of cut my teeth on the Cooper kids adventures uh, that he wrote for young readers. And those are really intense. Uh, they're definitely in the thriller genre. But when I was in my teens, you know, I, my dad had a lot of books, but not a lot of thrillers, but there were a couple of Peretti books up there on uh, this present darkness the oath. And the Stephen King vibes that came off of those things were just intense. And so I, I really felt like it was a, a rite of passage almost uh, to pick those up when I was in my mid-teens. And yeah, they blew me away. Freddie's writing style is incredibly cinematic. And I know that's a cliche now, but it's, it's true in his case. I think, honestly, he's one of the best thriller writers I've read, at least, you know, when he's at the top of his game, which I believe that he definitely was for this present darkness, which is the first adult novel that he wrote. He actually published the first Cooper kids adventure novel, uh, before this present darkness, it's called the door in the dragon's throat. Yeah. I found those Cooper kid books, Austin at a half price books here in town. And my oldest daughter started reading them and she's like, yeah, they're pretty exciting. And I have trouble putting them down when I go to bed and they're a little scary. Good. good. <laughs> so yeah, this is Steven with the emperor meme there. Um, my my personal favorites are, I uh, think, The Tombs of Anak and The Deadly Curse of Toko Ray, both of which are probably the scariest in the canon there. Oh, they really are. Absolutely. Well, at least the, the account that I remember is that uh, Peretti had pitched uh, This Present Darkness uh, and uh, the publishers weren't sure what to do with it. Uh, and then uh, Crossway Books actually picked up his, uh, his Cooper Kids books, which were originally uh, based on stories that Peretti told at a summer camp. And he... he later decided like to ghost stories them. yes oh I mean, just telling them out loud yes what hey what what if there was a what if there was an archaeological uh, family and uh, they were called to this uh this uh, tyrannical country to discover or to investigate this, uh, this mysterious pit and at the bottom was this ancient carven door and how do you open it should you open it i mean well we'll, we'll get into that one um in another podcast for sure for This Present Darkness, I read that summary earlier. It sounds so familiar to me. Uh, there's a, almost a nostalgic connection there. I can almost quote that summary by heart. Uh, even that last uh, sentence, which is actually kind of a, a partial sentence uh, describing how, how fast moving and thrilling the story is. Uh, it promises not only insight into spiritual themes, but fast moving, riveting reading uh, to rival other thrillers. Wondering like what, what you felt about those promises. Does the story live up to uh, that, uh, that rather remarkable uh, a promise on the back cover. I think it does. It definitely does in terms of the excitement of the reading experience. Freddy starts out very slow, very methodical. He's describing a small American town in what seems like, you know, the the northwestern plains. 
and it's and also it's the 1980s this isn't nostalgic 80s you know in the in 2020s this is the actual 80s because that's, that's the, right the, this is the novel yeah. was released <laughs> real time 80s and you get all of the concerns that were you know the hot button issues in the 80s like you can sort of tell that you know uh, video games are a leery subject you know he's not sure really you know whether that's this conduit for evil and you can sort of tell there's a bit of a stigma there well, that's right, because because Pastor Hank goes to the mall and he goes to the arcade and the bad guy is there and there's yeah, demons lurking evil. in the machines. That's right, I'd forgotten right. about that. Yes, but to yeah. be fair, evil lurks everywhere in Ashton, and that's I think one of the reasons that it is a spiritually insightful story. And it, you know, you can definitely run with it in wrong directions, as we'll get into. But the premise is that Satan is active in this world. And his forces are constantly at work. He roams around looking for someone to devour. And the situation as it exists in Ashton when the story begins is that the demonic hordes have infiltrated society at nearly every level. And the first half of the book is our protagonists waking up to this fact, waking up to the fact that there's a real organization and coordination going on that they need to become aware of if they're going to have a chance to bring the truth out and to defeat the evil plot that's afoot. And really what, uh, what we find uh, there's the, is the Omni corporation, correct? Yes. Is that, you know, unlike some, some other spiritual warfare books uh, that, that Christians have written, it's, it is not uh, Satan, for example, is never actually seen or quoted from in the story. You, you feel his influence, but Peretti treats these demonic warriors, you know, in this various hierarchy as, I mean, they're characters. Yes. I mean, that, their, their goal, there's no moral complexity to them. These are demons. Right. And, and the angels, you know, there's no, no moral complexity, you know, other than wondering how they're going to defeat the foe. Right. And the way that these demons work is in very otherwise ordinary ways. In the fact that Peretti wanted to stress that prayer has real power, he stresses it's not because of the ritual, but because human heroes are just praying to God and God is sovereign over this world. He is going to act, and the way that he acts is through the actions of people and, of course, the actions of his angelic warriors. Other ideas are, are, are speculative, like, you know, a demon or an angel can stick his sword into the hood of a car and, and make the engine die. Is it Marshall, the small-town newspaper editor, who, it's a cleaned-up book, you know, when the engine dies, he's like, nuts. Remember that? <laughs> Actually, remember right. that, you know. That's how you swear in the Peretti verse, <laughs> at least in this early version, is yeah, oh, nuts, you know. The, the strongest term you can read is, oh, crap, or something. Uh, or he other, cursed. Oh, yes. Well, he cursed. Yes. Otherwise, with a just, terrible oath. Yes, a terrible <laughs> oath. That's right. You know, the like oath. A flower bed. Yes. Yeah, we'll it's we'll a, cross over. Quote there. another podcast. Uh, other speculative concepts. You know, demons uh, are named after or can cause specific illnesses or maladies. You know, th there's a lot of speculation in here, but ultimately, it it comes across as feeling rather realistic, especially because the epic invasion of the town. Slight spoiler here is because someone's going to buy a college mm -hmm. like that. That's it. You know, and what you said is that, you know, the demons have infiltrated, you know, they'll not just come on like a mafia, you know, with their human allies and drive out small businesses and things, but they're also just active in the higher education industry or active in trying to split apart a church with very human causes like division and gossip and such. And actually that's uh, that's even more explored in the, in the second book. 
Yes, the, the goal is to seize power, which is accomplished in, like you said, it's very uh, rigid hierarchy. Peretti, of course, is pulling from scriptural passages to support this, like Daniel 10, where you have the messenger that appeared to Daniel saying, you know, I had to fight the prince of Persia uh, so many number of days in order to access you, and then I'm going to go back, and with this other person, I'm going to go and do X, Y, and Z. And so Peretti's riffing on a lot of these sort of hints that we get about what's actually going on in the spiritual realm, and he's filling in a lot of the gaps, you know, with his own speculations. And it's interesting to note how hierarchical and organized uh, both the angels and the demons are. Like you said, Satan is never makes an appearance. Instead, as the story progresses, we sort of we bump up the chain of demonic hierarchy until we're you know fighting a bigger foe who's really behind events, and they fight amongst themselves. And like you said, all the demons are pure evil, and the angels are completely submitted to the commander of the armies of the Lord. And what they're battling over, the, the wiggle room between evil and good, is human beings. And it's not as though it's angels and demons fighting each other and killing each other, and then sometimes that intersects with humanity. Humanity is the goal. Humanity is the ground that is captured and lost in these battles. And so uh, demons attempt to gain control of human beings, and angels attempt to turn human beings to service toward God. And that's what makes it really interesting because that's where the uncertainty comes from. Okay, so you said a lot of things right there that sound so familiar to the video games I grew up playing. And that's what's so funny about all this to me. Listener, remember, I've only read like the first chapter of this book so far. Blessed be he. Yes. And um, from what you said, Pretty or the book was very suspicious of video games. But, you know, so many video games are exactly this. It's like pure evil versus pure good. You talked about the progression of, like, the mini bosses to the big boss. And that's like, that's like every video game ever, right? Yeah. So that, that's just, uh, just some irony there. But, Austin, my, my big question for you is, okay, so in the first chapter, there's, like, um, I guess these two angels. I, I don't even really know who they are yet, but I, I assume they're angels. One's named Triscoll, if I remember Okay, correctly. the blonde guy and the brunette guy, basically. And then there's... <laughs> But their then, hair color is very, very, very often specified. Right, yes. right. And so, you know, I, I honestly didn't know at first reading this first chapter because you know they tell this girl, "Oh, go take, go take a picture over there." I'm you like, have no idea what's happening. I have no idea, and I'm like, right. "Oh man, these are carnival these are the demons setting. because you know Second Corinthians eleven says demons often appear as angels of light." So I'm like, "Oh, these are the bad guys," but then we actually see the real bad guy, which is this crawling, creeping you know, sludgy looking demon on the street trying to get into the church and then getting cast out. So I'm like, oh, okay. So this is actually probably pretty clear who the good guys and bad guys are. Would you, would you say that's fair? Yes. Uh, usually, I, I, I would say that it would be an unrealistic betrayal if we weren't given leave to peek behind the curtain. Because like you said, uh, Satan appears as an angel of light and that's how he tempts people is by not being that creepy, crawly, sludgy entity. but the premise of this story is that you do get to peek behind the curtain. And so, yeah, when you peek behind the curtain, you see, oh, wow, this, this person who is super charismatic, you know, and all these people are following him, actually, you know, there's a demon latched onto his head, that sort of thing. We, we get to see the spiritual world for what it actually is uh, instead of what it appears to our eyes to be. One of the main characters, uh, there's, there's two. Pastor Hank is the, the, the pastor at Ashton Community Church. 
not a denomination. Uh, <laughs> actually, it is a denomination in some Christian fiction. It's the very popular community church denomination. Uh, our other hero is Marshall Hogan, a large city reporter who's now a small town newspaper editor. And by the way, having now worked uh, myself, small town newspapers, uh, Peretti got his research right. Uh, at least, you know, I, I experienced the mid 2000s version. And from what I can tell, it at least got the culture right of that. The coffee maker never works. Oh, yes. Well, something like that. Uh, I'd, I'd install my own coffee maker. Uh, Marshall's daughter, actually, uh, her subplot actually kind of represents uh, that, uh, that, that duality of the fact that these evil spiritual ideas, these, these false religions uh, can be driven by demons. But on this side of the veil, they do look so appealing. Uh, she actually is, is uh, drawn into you know, one of those, uh, basically it's a coven, you know, there, there may not be as many covens around as maybe Christians thought, but in, I'm sure there are some. And in this case, it's a, it's a, a evil professor at the university who's into the new age movement and is trying to get her to, to, to meditate and, you know, and descend an imaginary elevator and step out into a green field and, you know, then talk to this beautiful spirit. And then of course, you know, one scene jump later, Peretti reveals, yeah, this is this is not this beautiful creature. It's this hideous, horned thing spewing sulfur, you know. And right. I don't think any of Peretti's demons carry around pitchforks, uh, but he does draw from that popular level medieval imagery. And in this case, you know, it makes it kind of pulp, but it kind of works anyway. But particularly because when Peretti tells us earthly things about small town politics. And, you know, a church whose members are arguing with each other. And there's actually a case of spiritual discipline. Yes. Uh, church discipline in uh, the early chapters uh, that is handled very sensitively, I felt. Because he portrays those things so well, we, we believe more. At least we're primed as readers to believe more when Freddie decides, okay, I'm going to try to speculate about some heavenly things, too. That's a good point. The portrayal of ordinary everyday life in this town and even the extraordinary circumstances that then develop is very realistic, uh, you know, very, very detailed description, right. which, which is one thing that Peretti does yes. very well. And so that level of detail and that level of realism, verisimilitude, then, you know, lets you suspend your disbelief for all these fantastical through the looking glass visions of uh, what's actually going on. Exactly. Now, as a, as fiction, Peretti does break some rules, or at least we think they're rules. He head hops. Uh, that's the uh, that's the novelist jargon for where you're in one person's head and then without breaking the scene or something, you jump into someone else's head. But it again, it works somehow. Austin, why does it work? I don't know how. Uh, he, it's it's a very immediate writing style that he has. When you're in someone's head uh, with Breddy, you are all the way in that person's head. You're thinking their thoughts. You're seeing the world through their eyes. There's no ambigu ambiguity about whose eyes you're looking through or what their thoughts are, how they view the world. And he's able to do this almost effortlessly. You know, he'll have a little break and then put you in the head of someone who's, who sees the world completely differently. And boom, you're just all, all the way there. And this is especially noticeable towards, you know, his climaxes when he's head hopping constantly, you know, from one person to the next. And you're just seeing the same event unfold from 10 different perspectives. Okay, Austin, here's another question I have about this book. I grew up a lot more familiar with the horror genre. And everything from just kind of mildly spooky, like the X-Files, to the terrifying like Lovecraftian or Stephen King kind of horror. So when I first jumped into this book, I'm like, oh, wow, we're seeing this really scary looking demon. So I started to wonder, okay, how scary is this book in general? So on, on a scale of, you know, Twilight Zone to 
to Lovecraft, like where would you put it? It's pretty scary. There's, uh, you know, scenes of violent death. There's people who are driven out of their minds and, you know, to commit suicide. Uh, there's people being terrorized by demons in, in the middle of the night, you know, stuff that we can all relate to, but just ratchet it up to the next level. There's scenes of possession. So it is Lovecraftian in that way. The darkness is very dark, but it's not Lovecraftian in the sense that there's always light present and there's always the knowledge that there are forces at work uh, to oppose all of this. And the characters who internalize that and who are able to see past the darkness, you know, past the, the clouds that are, that are covering the sun uh, are the ones who are able to get through it. Which is one thing I, really appreciate about the story. I mean, you might quibble with Peretti's view of prayer or be more cautious about some of his speculations about what demons or angels are actually able to do, but his book is overtly Christian, not just because he's a Christian, but because the themes are going in depth into biblical ideas as applied to our contemporary reality, or at least, you know, how, I mean, it's still a product of its time. Uh, Peretti applies it to, you know, a lot of the concerns that Christians had in the eighties, but I don't think, you know, I don't think all of those have just gone away just because it's name of current year. Also, I did want to run this past you too. Uh, we were talking about this before. Uh, there was a 1997 interview of Peretti in world magazine. Gene Edward Beef did that interview uh, for a story called this present and future Peretti. And when I first read this review, I finally, uh, got as a, as a reader, as a fan of Peretti's work, uh, got an answer to a question I'd always had. Why did you stop? Good sir, you wrote two novels that were you know, more straight up classified spiritual warfare, angels versus demons. You know, we've been informally referring to it, I guess, as the Peretti verse. Uh, and, and yet he, he stopped after two books. Uh, this, is the, this is the quote from the story that explains why. Quote, what many of his, Peretti's, readers took from the book, however, was not just that the culture wars have a spiritual significance. They took the darkness books as combat manuals for fighting devils. In prayer groups across the country, people were binding demons named after specific sins, envy, despair, lust, and calling on angels to beat down devils in charge of particular cities and nations. Quote within a quote, quote, that really alarmed me, end quote, Mr. Peretti told World. People were taking his fiction literally as if it were fact. Conversely, other Christians were taking theological issue with episodes in his book as if his attempts to dramatize the importance of prayer meant that God is actually dependent on prayer warriors. Though he, Peretti, went on the speaking circuit to discuss spiritual warfare, he stressed that his books were symbolic and that theological conclusions need to come out of the Bible rather than a work of fiction. Part of the problem may have been that evangelicals simply are not used to fiction. As a result, some confuse fiction with reality. This problem is compounded today, Mr. Peretti points out, by Christian novels, such as the rash of apocalyptic end-of-the-world novels with their antichrist conspiracy theories that do purport to be factual. Brief aside, uh, this was the 90s. Uh, I think we know what series the interviewer was talking about. Anyway, <laughs> the this only actually, series. <laughs> the Nicolas Cage movie, uh, which uh, was not a gleam in anyone's eye at that point. No. Anyway, this quote finishes with Mr. Peretti resolved not to write any more Demons vs. Angels books. End quote. Uh, alas, part of me understands. Another part goes, alas. That's why he stopped with writing that that one sequel, Piercing the Darkness. He's written lots of books. This is since. why we can't have nice things. Yes. Well, he's. I, I still think his best book is The Visitation, which actually is almost a return to form. It, it's it's almost like 
one of his darkness books, but with all the angels versus demons parts cut out. You suspect that all that stuff is going right. on, but he decided, you know, all those parts that as a teenage reader, I thought were a little bit more boring about the humans and the church conflicts and your, your struggle with faith and to pursue the real Jesus amidst the false Christ. He emphasized all of those. And as a result, I actually think that the visitation is his best novel. Still, he didn't go back to the darkness universe. Austin, have we been denied? Like what's, what's your feeling in response to that? And especially that cultural response to this present darkness uh, back when it was first released. It's funny to see Peretti's evolution on this subject. Uh, like you said earlier, the the back cover of the book touts that it's you know had, delivers keen insight into spiritual warfare. You know, it's a it's the best book about prayer since the Screw Tape Letters. But on the other hand, if you read the forward to the second edition, you see Peretti comparing or he's referencing uh, Star Wars, Superman, and Indiana Jones as inspirations for why he wanted to write a book like this. So it's kind of like he's a little downplaying the serious spiritual significance of the work uh, without actually tr- downplaying the, the need for actual spiritual warfare in the real world. You can see that he he's never walked back the necessity of actual prayer, actual spiritual warfare, and you know the reality of, of demons at loose in the world. But yeah, you can, you can see that he recognizes uh, excess when he sees it. And, you know, a lot of this was out of his own imagination. Uh, he, he said elsewhere in other interviews, he doesn't have any personal experience with, you know, exorcism or, or dealing directly with the spiritual world in that way. But he's read stories of missionaries. And uh, yet, I think he, well, his brother, his brother-in-law was a missionary and, and told him stories about happenings uh, like what he portrays in his books. So you can you can see, I think part of his purpose in writing the story was to wake people up to the reality that there is more occurring every day, everywhere than what we can see with our eyes. You know, we think it's all in our head. We think that we are the captains of our fate, but there are forces at work that we do not understand. And we can have a better chance to not be manipulated by them if we're cognizant of their activity. And so, you know, he, he spiced it up (laughs) and unfortunately people uh, took that as gospel and, you know, read his, his fictional portrayals of uh, spiritual warfare as prescriptive. It's like, oh, you need to know this demon's name before you can cast it out. Well, nothing in Peretti's experience said that that was necessarily true and it's not in scripture. So don't take that as, as an absolute truth. It's, it's speculation. So this is so interesting to me. I'm not going to take a stance here on any of this, but like I, I have definitely seen this dynamic at work in different prayer groups and different, I don't know, consultations or, or whatever. But like among Christians, I, I've seen these kinds of actions taking place. Like we need to figure out the demon of this situation or that person's, you know, trouble in their life and, and speak against it. And You know, I've always kind of wondered where that came from. And so it's interesting that it all comes from this book, or a lot of it does. But at the same time, Frank Peretti didn't really want to be the poster child for that, is what it sounds like. And he he could have, like, you know, you said he was on, Stephen, you said he was on like the speaking tour for a while. And he could have really capitalized on that and saying, well, I'm the expert on this. And, you know, pay $500 to come to my seminar and find out how to do spiritual warfare, the pretty style. True. Yeah. He never did that. And yet he could have, because he did have, I believe experience as, right. a, as a pastor at one point. But, but doesn't that feel like, okay, I'm going to get in trouble here. 
But doesn't that feel like so many Christian speakers today? Well, uh, at least historically, recent historically in the spiritual warfare circuit, yes. I won't name names, but there are a few who take either experiences they've had or even worse, you know, secondhand anecdotes about, well, this is what so-and-so Christian did when they thought there was a demon. And so that then becomes standard practice. Whereas we see in scripture uh, a, a greater valuing of basic spiritual practices for Christians, not just prayer, but seeking the word and training to become a disciple and the basic activities of the local church. All of that stuff is so boring and so material. And yet, and, and I would say that in Peretti's world too, the reason why we buy, not only that we buy the angels versus demons speculation that he offers, it's because my interpretation of his universe is, is that it's not a, oh, this material world is not really where the action is. The real action is beyond the curtain, you know, the platonic ideal and out there in the spiritual dimension somewhere. I, I think that Peretti actually makes the angels versus demons stuff second tier, not in second tier of importance, but the angels and demons are warring over souls and institutions and whether or not people are drawing closer to God or drawing away from him. They are fighting for the material world. And so therefore the real world, the the theater in which God is playing out his drama of the gospel is actually the most important. And the spiritual dimension is real, but it is the, the forces in the spiritual dimension are fighting for this material world. Yes, and something I think is also important to point out about the the thematic gist of the story is that, you know, there's a tension that you see sometimes in this book where, you know, there's a demon named sickness, for instance. And so the temptation there is to say, well, sickness is of the devil. And so, you know, anyone who, you know, if you're sick, it's because you're demonically afflicted or some something like that. And yet we also see another dynamic at play in the novel in which trouble and hardship are tactics used by the angels and ultimately by God to enact his will. And we right. see both both of these dynamics at play. And, you know, it's easy to sort of go all on one side or all on the other and say, God is in total control, so sickness isn't anything demonic. Or, you know, sickness is evil and God doesn't want you to be sick, so it's a demonic thing. But we see both dynamics in scripture. You know, we have Satan afflicting Job under the authorization and the administration of of God. And that's true in this story, too. The entire strategy, basically, of our captain of the host angel, Tal, you know, the big, uh, impressive angel, is to appear to be defeated in order to draw out a greater evil into the open whether that's successful or not, or or at what cost is, you know, something that you find out in the story. But there's a real tension there. uh, And it's portrayed both ways. And I, on one hand, you could say that that's sloppy. But on the other hand, it rings true in real life, too, I think. Well, this is why I think even though any, any of us would hardly affirm the biblical doctrine that God is absolutely sovereign, that there's not one stray atom or molecule in his universe that's outside of his will, you know, one way or another, Christians can debate the exact causes there. I think that Peretti's universe aligns with that. You, you know, an angel or a demon can stick a sword in a car hood and make the engine die. Right. Uh, it's, it, like you said, it's, it's not that if something bad happens, it's automatically a demon. And then you need to 
figure out the demon strategy and then cast him out in the name of Jesus. Yes, that was the example I was thinking of. There's a moment when uh, one of our guardian angels uh, thwacks the car engine of our hero and our hero's they, they even there, you know, about it a little bit. Yeah, he's, he's, you know, cursing and it's super frustrated and the angels up there laughing, you know, knowing what, what that what happens next is part of the plan. Okay. <laughs> it's funny because I can think of a time in college when my car would mysteriously break down and I can see how God definitely worked in my life through that. Now, whether it was an actual angel doing that or not, I don't know. Turns out my car had a really bad uh, starter and it had to be replaced, but I, I had to use like a wrench to like hotwire the starter. It was an old car. And wow. so you were already more of a car person than I <laughs> well, have been that, so That's the extent of my car person knowledge. But um, uh, Austin, going back to something you said a few minutes ago about, and Stephen, what you just said about the angels and demons in the story are so interested in human activity, therefore so should we. And Austin, you talked earlier about how they're trying to infiltrate every level of human society, including this university or this college that's about to be built. So as a young Christian in college, I got my first taste of this when uh, my roommate said, hey, you want to come to class with me today? And I'm like, sure, well, what, what's your class? And he said, it's the history of the Bible. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know you were taking that. He's like, yeah, it's taught by an agnostic Jew. And I'm like, well, okay, that's what kind could of- possibly go wrong? Right, I'm like, well, that's, that's interesting. Okay, well, I'd, I'd like to hear his perspective. Why not? And we go in there and, uh, you know, I was expecting some kind of intellectual debate or, or something, but it was so hostile. And like he was baiting the class to like argue with him. And I, I, I think I yep. took the bait at one point and I, and I realized later, well, that was dumb. You know, I just walked right into his trap. I, I just couldn't understand that. Not just from like an educational perspective, but I'm like, what makes someone want to teach something they don't believe in unless the goal is to make other people not believe in it. Like it was just so weird to me. It, it was, it was way right. beyond a, well, he, well, here's the Bible and here's where we think, you know, history may not agree with it. It was like, you're stupid for believing this and here's why. And if you think differently, you know, step up to the plate, young lad. So I, I you know, I totally got to know this from college and, you know, really started to get involved with like campus ministries, like Campus Crusade for Christ and really saw the importance of that work. Cause that's when people are making right. those decisions for themselves. Like, what am I going to believe for the rest of my life? Yeah, like you said, it's uh, it's hostility. You know, hostility has actual malice behind it, which does which does exist. Yes, you think about the the format of a college. It is, in fact, a mass indoctrination center. That's that's simply the function that it provides, and so you can use that for good or you can use it for evil. But the potential that that the college represents to shape the perceptions and the worldview of everyone who comes through it makes it a, a, a flaming red target for everyone who is interested in doing that. And so, yeah, to, to think that Satan would not be, would not make that a, a high priority is I think quite naive. In fact, if we look at the real world, we see that that's, you know, what is, what has happened. <laughs> the numbers of people who, who lose their faith in college is, is staggering when you look at it. And it's because it is an indoctrination center that has been in many cases, captured by people who are hostile to the faith. I don't know what you're talking about. That only happened in the 80s, right? Colleges now are totally <laughs> sane, and 
it's very affordable and it's a very pleasant experience. Well, I, I would say that uh, perhaps one could say, you know, although we're not giving uh, the devil's uh, playbook, uh, perhaps one could say that although Satan or demons or whomever still has the, the college infiltration strategy in full swing, uh, it does seem that the exact strategy has, has been not so much the uh, let's get people all up into seances and the occult and, you know, some more overt uh, satanic uh, cult type stuff. Uh, I would wager that if, uh, you know, this book were remade today, you know, it would be uh, certain other ideologies, you know, whose professors are walking around completely unaware uh, that there's actually a, uh, an evil spirit clinging to their skull with, with its claws sunk into their right, brain. The particular, uh, the particular ideology feels dated, but the delivery system feels very prescient for today. Exactly. Which is, which is why, I mean, at least for my part, when I, when I think about the, the things that, that, that are evil in the world or even bad events that happen, like technical failures and such, having grown up with this book, at least for my teen years, I don't know that I am literally imagining, you know, that an angel is you know, stuck his sword into my hard drive and, you know, that's why my computer crashed or a demon has done this, but his name I, is Bill Gates. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> this is our Mac, our Mac, our Mac fan over here. I would say that I probably did have my imagination trained a little bit better than it would have otherwise been to accept that events that happen like that, especially ones that interfere with my precious schedule, thank you very much, are one way or another under the sovereign control of God. You know, whether that is an angel actually taking some action or, or a demon taking some action or just the flow of events. I, I think that thanks to Peretti's worldview here, it was part of my development in, in thinking God, God really is sovereign and he is going to work out a happy ending. And even these little events might be part of that, of that grand narrative that I have uh, or the, the, the smaller part that I have to play in the grand narrative of Christ. Right, even the things that we don't see as significant at the time can carry huge significance. And I think that's why it's valid to compare this novel to the screw tip letters, because that's the same message. Uh, is the things that you're not paying attention to are the conduits that evil forces use to uh, infiltrate your life. It's where you're not paying attention. Okay, I'm going to have to look this up in a minute, but um, quick pop culture reference uh, rabbit trail. There's an episode of Star Trek Voyager where everyone experiences these mysterious headaches, and it turns out to be these like interdimensional beings that are like latching onto people's heads, like you said, Stephen, and they have to you know figure out how to get rid of them. And so um, it's interesting how many episodes of actually that whole series go into these sort of spiritual realities. And I know DS Nine is your is your deal, but uh, yeah, I well DS Nine also gets pretty spiritual at times. Sure. Why don't we move into this article that Austin and Steve and I sent you. This is from Speculative Faith, our blog on Lorehaven. And this is written by Travis Perry. And the title is, What's the Deal with the Devil? And the link will be in the show notes. Uh, because he talks about Preddy in this article. His first point is, Satan's primary goals are to disrupt our attempts to serve God and share the gospel. And then to get us to sin and believe false ideas. What would you say, like? Does Peretti's book line up with that? Is that pretty much what he uh, says too? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, as we discussed, there's actually a demon in the story na literally named Deception, and he's the guy at the university. Uh, so that's a huge aspect of what's playing out. 
we can see a lot of tension between the idea that, oh, you know, demons made me do it. People do things because they're, they're controlled demonically versus people do things because they want to. And demons are simply amplifying that pre-existing sinful desire. You know, the demons in the story actually amplify rather than create. They don't you know, show up and then turn you. You know, you want to do something and then they show up and uh, persuade you to follow through with that. So they're like the Russian uh, troll bots or whatever that are <laughs> swarming Twitter as we speak and finding every divisive issue. And just... this is some way I'm <laughs> glad that uh, Frank Perdy is no longer writing these kinds of books. <laughs> it would be a little bit scarier now. Yeah. So that brings me to First uh, Timothy four one, where it says uh, that demons are trying to teach us things, and I, I've always found that very interesting. That you, you know, growing up having sort of a naive idea of demons and everything before i really got into the bible i just thought oh demons are like in stephen king movies where they're just trying to terrify us or kill us or whatever like the evil clowns but you know the bible really emphasizes how they're trying to teach us things and and yes there are the people that are demonized like the um the man uh that lived in the graveyard but you know so often i feel like and maybe this is a denominational divide or maybe it's just people's different opinions but there's always kind of this tension of like, well, are we in a power struggle with the evil world? Like we have to fight against them in our some way, or is it just a, a matter of our mind? And it's like a truth falsehood struggle where we're just, it's all about just having the right ideas. Does Preddy's book kind of take a side in that? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Human beings are, are complicated things. There's our mental beliefs. And then there's our emotions, and then there's our will, and each of these can be attacked separately or in conjunction. You know, you might know what the right thing to do is, and simply not do it because you are afraid. You might know what the truth is and not actually live as though it's true because of some emotional reason. In this present darkness, the demons really launch a you know full spectrum attack and they they tailor their attacks based on what they see as individuals weaknesses and sometimes they're wrong because you know they're not omniscient like god but they they think that they have good intel and then they tailor their their attacks accordingly i I see a general three-phase approach throughout the story at least directed at our our primary heroes marshall hogan and uh hank bush and uh to lesser degree bernice kruger they first attempt to intimidate our heroes because they recognize them as dangerous men and they want them out of the way so that they aren't looking for the truth they aren't figuring out what's going on and so they attempt to scare them uh, just like they've done with many other people uh, they show up and you know terrify them basically just straight up terror and anyone who survives that needs to be compromised because you can't just intimidate them in silence so the next phase is temptation, and they'll play upon you know pre-existing desires for one thing or another, things that they you know they're just throwing things up against the wall, seeing what will stick. And if they survive that, then they're real threat, and they simply need to be destroyed. And there's many ways uh, that that can happen. It's not simply you know if, if you if a demon can gain control of someone's mind, you can just drive him to suicide. But if he can't do that, then he uses society to turn against this person. So uh, there's campaigns throughout the story to oust the pastor of this small Ashton community church uh, because he's, he's too, too harsh 
too unfeeling. He preaches the word of God too rigidly, too literally. Uh, and he, he takes things seriously, like, as you mentioned, church discipline. Uh, you know, who does that in this modern age? That's just uncaring and uncompassionate. And so the demons uh, rile people up to try to push people out of positions of influence. And if that doesn't work, then they try to smear their reputation. That's something that really made me set up when I was rereading this book, because I, I didn't really pick up on that too much as a, when I was younger. But I feel like that's, that's, that's a real threat in the, in the day and age we live in, you know, in, in, in cancel culture is to have your reputation ruined and then nobody listens to you. And they, you know, without any, you know, investigation to find out if there's anything behind the accusation, it's just like, there's an accusation. Well, you know, so long. <laughs> and that's incredibly useful uh, to a demon who knows exactly how to smear people with evil. So there's a multi-pronged approach. Yeah, we're moving into like a shame honor culture, you know, where it's not just about if you're guilty or innocent, it's about if you have communal shame. Um, I like what you said about the demons attacking emotions. And that's, um, you know, Travis talks about that in his article, that it's not just our minds, it's our feelings that that the enemy can come after. I think that fiction is wonderful because it helps us to see the world more clearly by getting us outside of our own heads. We see perspectives that we wouldn't otherwise see. We can understand things that we haven't experienced personally. But then if we forget that there is a real world outside and we are characters living in it, you know, this story is not our own. God is writing it and we are the characters. If we forget that and if we sort of lose ourselves in the speculative world, then we just get back inside of our own heads again. And the the benefit that it has given us is is diminished. Amen. That's a great point. And by the way, I did find the title of this Star Trek Voyager episode. <laughs> Just to go back to that rabbit trail, it's called uh, the Scientific Method. It's uh, season four, episode seven. And so it's all about these aliens that are experimenting secretly on the crew of the Voyager. And at first, they think, oh, we're just getting headaches because of a pulsar. It's just a natural phenomenon. Oh, but no, it turns out it's these otherworldly beings. And now their their goals are more like scientific. It's like they're using humans as lab rats or something. Uh, but it's interesting how the, the secular science fiction wants to delve into this at times, even fiction that you know is, is very humanistic. It's like, oh, maybe there are forces beyond what we can see. And of course, they defeat them through phasers and you know force fields. It's not prayer. And it's not uh, the truth in the Bible and it's not church and our, our fellowship with one another. And so, you know, it's always interesting how you see these parallels in pop culture where they almost get it right. You know, it's like they, they touch on things that we know as Christians to be true, but of course the solution's wrong. And so I like to watch these shows, especially with my family and really kind of pick apart how does this line up with other stories we see? So I, I really, I cannot wait to dive into this book and read more. So any final thoughts on the book before we go to our, our uh, mailbag, Stephen? Nope. I'm good to go. All right. So first I'm going to read a Apple podcast review. This is from a username Flindy who says, quote, I very much enjoyed the exposure to new stories I've not heard of before, but even more, I appreciate the balanced approach to our hosts bring to the varying degrees of theology and fantastical powers license in their discussions of some pretty delicate issues it is both freeing and cautionary at the same time. And it, that is a tough needle to thread end quote. Well, thank you so much, Flindy. That is exactly what we're trying for 
and doing our best about. So we appreciate the feedback, especially with topics like this one. Yeah. Uh, do give us some feedback if, if you thought maybe we didn't quite stick the needle through the thread. Yes. And, uh, and Wait, if you would, I need to redo that again, yeah. <laughs> stick the needle through the thread. <laughs> no, we're we're going to leave that one in. <laughs> no. You know what? Let's just let's just move on. Uh, we've already had a few false endings here. So there we go. I'm just not even going to record that one. But uh, to our listener, I want to say if, if you would like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we would love to read it here. And we're going to go to our next item from our mailbag, which is a fantastical reader origin story from Heidi B. But Austin, you want to read that for us? Sure. Heidi B. says, my origin story would have probably been a picture book, but I'm not really sure which one. I just know that I was always drawn to stories where something extraordinary or weird or unbelievable happened. And I remember getting disappointed when picture books didn't have those elements and getting excited when I found one that did have those elements. So there wasn't a clear line for me. I remember reading Narnia and The Hobbit, Lloyd Alexander in middle school and My Father's Dragon before that. But I was honestly always seeking that magic. Like I read any Nancy Drew book that looked like it had a ghost element first. I was always disappointed when it was a Scooby-Doo-esque fake ghost trick. That's a great story. I, I totally relate to that. I, I hated that in Scooby-Doo. I don't know why. I'm like, oh, I want there to be something fun and exciting. Oh, it's just a dude wearing a mask. That's boring. Everything is the material. New Scooby-Doo is, yes. well, the new Scooby-Doo has brought in more mystical origins for things now. So I suppose there's, there's hazards in that area, but there's also hazards in the materialism-only explanations. <laughs> Austin, thanks so much for joining us today. And for you, our listener, make sure you watch out for the new Lorehaven Magazine issue that's coming out later this March. It's our spring 2020 issue. And the cover on that is going to be our favorite fantasy. And that's going to include Austin's article about this present darkness, Stephen's article about another Frank Freddy book, and several other reviews about the best Christian fantastical fiction and other fiction that our Lorehaven review team has reviewed. And and if you're not familiar with Lorehaven, it is a magazine made up by a team of reviewers who every quarter put out these great summaries that you can read to find the best Christian fantastical fiction. You can get that free online by subscribing at lorehaven.com. That website is also the best place to let us know if you have read This Present Darkness or other novels by Frank E. Peretti. What is your origin story with these books? Have you read other uh, spiritual warfare fiction with angels versus demons or any other stories that uh, you really enjoyed, just let us know at lorehaven.com. You can also email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. For our next issue on Fantastical Truth, we are going to put on our hard hats. We're going to do a little deconstruction. And by that, I mean that we're going to bounce off uh, several recent uh, narratives that have been in the news, uh, particularly around uh, Christian news sources and conversations around the church water cooler, faith deconstruction, or just deconstruction, deconversion, we're calling it. It's nothing new, just the labels are new, and we've had a lot of those kinds of stories around uh, where people, especially people who have been fairly famous among Christians, they'll come out and they'll say, hey, I'm not a Christian anymore. Here's why. I would love to tell you all about it. Listen to my podcast. Join me in this uh, faith, anti-faith quest. We're going to explore a few issues that Christians ask about these, but uh, more positively, we're going to explore the question of how excellent stories, fantastical stories made by Christians can actually help us resist that impulse. They can actually help us build up not only our heads with doctrine and truth, but also our hearts and our imagination. 
And that way we can love Jesus more and can face the challenges of life. And uh, some of these things that are taking these, uh, these folks by surprise, we may be a little bit better prepared for. Austin, thank you once more for joining us. We hope to have you again sometime uh, to talk about stories like this one. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. In the meantime, we're going to keep praying. We're going to watch the skies and we're going to fight that spiritual warfare, even in our less spectacular ways, as we continue on this eternal mission to seek and find fantastical truth.